Welcome to The Back Shop, a podcast about the concepts and practice of media with a focus on its impact on society. Each week, we cover ideas about the theories, concepts, and history that have driven media development. We will also keep an eye on how new technologies are changing traditional ways of getting information at a time when democracy needs our engagement more than ever. This is The Back Shop. I'm your host, Jeremy Lata, an associate professor of journalism and communication at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Welcome to episode four. And last time we left off with a discussion about just the media business writ large. It was looking at uh, media conglomerates and um, these uh, industries that used to be, you know, separated by their their place in the field. Uh, newspapers becoming their own level and um, television being its own separate entity to being combined into these larger um, corporate media companies, these conglomerates that control a good chunk of the media business. Um, and, and in fact, you know, we've got you know, five conglomerates in the U.S. that control 90% of um, media business here um, in the United States. Um, what I want to do today is break down a little more um, by sector, and I wanna, I'm going to start with newspapers and talk a little bit of what that landscape looks like. Um, and it has changed quite a bit. Uh, the newspaper industry is roughly about 300 plus years old here in the United States. Um, Public Occurrences was the very first newspaper to be published here in the United States, published in 1691. In fact, it celebrated its birthday uh, a couple of weeks ago here. Um, it has a distinction of lasting only a day because it uh, was shut down. It was an illegal newspaper that was being produced uh, here in the colonies. And um, because of that, you know, there's, there's always been kind of this built-in kind of anti-authority cherry tradition in American media, I think, in general. Um, you know, by the time of the American Revolution, a lot of our founding fathers were printers. They, um, you probably know about them through things like the, the Federalist Papers and, and being known as pamphleteers, but a lot of them also were um, it, publishing newspapers, basically a one-man shop. They owned the printing press, they owned the shop, and they, they did most of the writing and typesetting, and then they, they hired people to deliver uh, for them or distribute for them. And American journalism in the early early days of this of this country was was largely basically those one man bands. Um, it began to change uh, early early in the nineteenth century, uh, where uh, part of this was a result of printing press technology getting better. Um, you know, the steam presses were coming online and. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, much faster, much much better quality speeds were possible. It, it by very virtue of that, it cut the cost of, of production. And so um, we saw in the 1830s or so um, a uh, an era we call the penny press era in the United States, where newspapers were ultra cheap, and in large cities that had many many of these, uh, folks would because they because of the low cost, they would subscribe to several a day. Um, in that in that time, um, you know, you were you were dealing with uh, newspapers that um, really were aligned with a particular party or candidate or ideology. Um, they were famously biased in ways that um, even the biggest Fox News critic might might uh, uh, sh- uh, shudder at. It was it was a very partisan, very um, very distant era from where we where we see media today. Um, I, I've always said that a good analog for the penny press days were blogs um, because they were written with voice. They were written for audience in ways that was trying to appeal to them, but they weren't. They were definitely written from a point of view. Um, they were. I, I would look at it and say, even for its day, they were a little amateurish, but the production quality was fine. 
Um, but the reason why they were made possible was because the, the, the costs were so low. The barriers for entry into the market were so low that um, people with a voice could could easily start one of these up and distribute them. And that feels a lot to me like the blogosphere. So it's always felt like a good analog. By the end, end part of the 19th century, though, you know, a lot of these newspapers were going out of business. They couldn't sustain themselves. Um, the, the, the eventual newspaper wars um, up the costs of acquiring news. We saw the pr- rise of professional reporters during the Civil War, um, where you had more more uh, newspapers hiring staffs. And so with, the, with that came costs. And so the cost of these newspapers went up, and then consumers had to make a choice then between quality and quantity. Um, and, and so we started to see mergers and, and newspapers going out of business. And so by the, the 1870s, 1880s, I mean, these cities that had several newspapers were starting to, to see that whittled down. Um, we moved into the, uh, fierce competition in certain parts of the country. The yellow journalism era at the end of the 19th century was probably the most famous. Um, and that was between, uh, Pulitzer and Hearst most famously, there were others involved, but. Um, you know, a, a time of very salacious, uh, you know, uh, agenda-driven news that was uh, definitely not the, uh, the 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 modern version that we've come to know. Um, there was a shift toward objectivity in the early 1900s. Um, what's interesting about it is Pulitzer, who was one of the worst in, in yellow journalism, was was part of the person who one of the people who helped make this happen. He um, helped. Um, start the uh, Columbia School of Journalism, and his name is on our most famous prestigious journalism prize. But I think that there was a, a reaction to that era, and some of the some of the players who were involved in that helped fund alternative uh, ways of doing this in the business, um, and and coming up with ways of trying to uh, uh, create journalism that was not um, of the kind of quality that yellow journalism was, something much better. And so we started to see founding of journalism schools. Uh, Missouri School of Journalism opened its door in 1908. Um, and a couple of years later, Columbia opened. And we started to see, by about the 1930s, pro- uh, professional journalism start to make its way into colleges um, as a field of study uh, on its own. Um, and so we you know, had people who were being trained for the first time outside the newsroom on, on, the, on the business of journalism. Um, some have said that objectivity was a, a market reaction to um, to, to yellow journalism, and that is that they, they were so appalled by some of the worst excesses of that era that it was a, um, they were going to lose their livelihood and their business, you know, if they did not reform, and so reform they did. And so the objectivity era, which, um, you know, I would say spanned most of the 20th century, um, people have said was a reaction to yellow journalism. I would actually say it's probably a little bigger than that in the sense that there's an economic story there that... Um, you know, this was a, an era in which newspapers were starting to appeal to mass, mass audiences, you know, that even in New York City, which had several newspapers, you know, you, you're still dividing up a relatively small population relative to the rest of the comp- country. And so, you know, you're trying to capture more market. And so there's a business decision to be, to be as appealing as you can to a wider spectrum, which means you can't really be um, gossipy, salacious, um, uh, some favoring one uh, candidate or party. Um, if you're trying to sell to a, a wider population. So objectivity, I think, was a reaction um, to yellow journalism, but it was also an economic decision that was be, it was it was made possible by uh, an era where the costs of doing news were going up and you had to grow your audiences. You had chances to capture more market share and so forth. Um, 
the reason uh, one before I shift into some of the newspaper economics of the later part of that century, I, I do want to note that objectivity itself has changed. We're going to talk about this a little more in, in a future podcast, but objectivity early on was 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 presented as a as a way to uh, do like a social science type inquiry on your um, on your reporting process. Um, Walter Lippmann uh, was the most famous advocate of this. He wrote Public Opinion in 1922. It's considered the Bible for this, um, and he argued that uh, you know we have to. We have to um, in- investigate and interrogate our own our own biases, and so objectivity of method was was an important piece of this puzzle. It looks, looks very different than the modern conception of objectivity, which is that you you must turn off your biases like a switch. Um, I think that that was something that's emerged a little later. During the twentieth century, though, we started to see the creation of some of these horizontally integrated media companies, uh, business, newspaper companies in particular. Um, Prior to 1900, these, these, these horizontally integrated companies did exist, but they were mostly the purview of rich owners. And so you had a, a single wealthy owner or a family that owned a newspaper that got big enough that they could buy a few other newspapers. And so they owned a few properties roughly in the same area. And um, most of these companies then were privately owned by an individual or a, a family or group. Um but by the middle part of the 19th, uh, 20th century, excuse me, 1950s or so, you know, some of these family companies were starting to get big, and we saw the emergence of major horizontally integrated uh, media companies that were publicly owned in, in the sense of, um, you know, this publicly traded on the stock exchange. Um, and that is that there was a shift in, in, the, in the second half of the 20th century away from um, private ownership that was accountable to a single owner or a small group of people and toward instead quarter to quarter public expectations. And so the 1970s and 1980s, I think, were represented what I would call probably the greatest um, consolidation spree in the industry that we've seen. Um, that, you know, you, you saw the rise of major change like a net. Knight Ritter, uh, which uh, both of those don't really exist anymore. Um, Gannett just merged with uh, Gatehouse Media, but I, I think that the Gannett part's going away in a lot of ways. It still exists in name, but I think Gate, Gatehouse is eventually going to swallow them up. Knight Ritter uh, doesn't even exist anymore. It was one of the largest newspaper chains in America in the 80s and 90s, and then they were they were bought out by McClatchy last decade. Um, the the old players that, that dominated this landscape, um, Gannett, uh, McClatchy um, have largely uh, Night Raider. They've gone by the wayside for the most part. Um, they um, they they have been bought out or merged or split up into pieces and sold. Uh, Tribune Media Company, you know, the same kind of things. Although they've they've spun back their newspaper content away from uh, uh, they used to be have their TV and, uh, properties merged together, and it was a little more complicated. Um, so what happened? Well. Newspapers were enormously profitable uh, right in the middle of this buying spree. Um, a typical industry will make anywhere from like three to five to ten percent um, profit um, in terms of margin in a given year, and that is for every dollar you invest in your business, a ten percent margin would get you about a dollar ten back. Um, newspapers, the the old joke was that the, they were licensed to print money um, with their printing press. <laughs> that is um, a it, it, this wasn't uniform, but uh, a lot of these newspapers were making about a dollar forty for every dollar they put in, about a forty percent profit margin. It was around thirty to forty percent, depending on the market, somewhere in the twenties and twenty fives. Um, but they were enormously profitable, 
And so that was spurring a lot of these consolidations because the big media players like the Knight Ridders of the world were going out and borrowing money with the notion that, look, I mean, we, this is a great investment for us. We'll go borrow the money to, to buy these newspapers and the profit margins will pay off the loan. And then by the time we own these things, we will own major media outlets all over the country in major markets and, and have a lot of market power. And so you can kind of see some of the built-in risk in that model, which is that you know a lot of it was built on the notion that these profit margins were always going to continue, and uh, they did not. In fact, um, in fact, you know by the by the mid 1990s, this picture was looking a little more bleak already. It, the the real crash didn't happen until about 2005, um, where where things started to get really bad. But the decline was already already in, in place by the by the early 1990s. And in fact, even with these large profit margins, um, the decline in readership was already happening. Since we've, we, have, we have numbers since about 1970 that shows just year over year a, a gradual, gentle slope that, that represents a loss in subscriptions. And so these, these businesses were already on the decline. Um, you're, they were not replacing older readers with younger readers at the same rate. Um, and so with each generation, they were reading the newspaper, subscribing to the newspaper less and less. And so you had just a, a um, you had a built-in kind of decline that was already built in this model. So it wasn't sustainable even looking at the numbers, even before you look at the internet. This was eventually going to bottom out because the, the habit was not being picked up by future generations. So that was a piece of this. But, you know, you've got debt looming in the background that's being taken on with the hope that you can just outlast whatever decline you're, you're suffering through. And then the internet came along. And it wasn't a big problem right away. A lot of the newspapers made the, the decision to put some of their stuff online for free early on and hope to build readership. Um, and that didn't particularly pan out. But it, it also wasn't really the death knell people thought it was. The real, the real problem came um, in the middle part of the last decade when all of a sudden um, there were other choices that uh, were made available to people um, looking for news and information on the market that they didn't previously had. The rise of self-publishing, Blogger, uh, was invented in 1999. Um, WordPress and other types of live journal type pad type places came along that allowed people to create their own publications because they suddenly had publishing software and didn't need to know HTML code anymore. And so the gates were wide open now for independence to, to spring up in some of these areas. Um, and, and probably a little more famously to copy articles off websites and put them on their own site and represent as their own. And that was a, a business known as uh, aggregation or content farming, depending on what, what, uh, what they were doing. So that was a piece of it. The other piece of that was happening, though, was that um, buying choices increased. And so markets were getting, uh, newspapers famously had locked in their local audiences in terms of advertising, that if you needed to buy or sell something, the, you know, the only place to do that was to place it to classify in the, in the newspaper. Or if you needed to know what was on sale at your local stores, newspapers had those ads. Um, but the advertising model got broke. Um, Craigslist came along and made classified ads free. Um, people like to blame Craig Newmark for, for causing this. And I'm going to tell you that anybody else would have invented it too. And the only thing, the reason I'm glad Craig did it is because he loves the news and he loves the business and he wants to help it. So he invented something that somebody else would have done anyway um, and, and has used his money instead to help further innovation in journalism. So that's just a little aside. Um, but journalism... Uh, really dependent on this advertising revenue. Um, and so, you know, in a, in a typical newspaper model, about 15% of revenue that was coming in was coming from subscriptions year over year. And so that general decline really wasn't a huge, huge problem, you know, even since the 1970s, because they weren't, it wasn't accounting for a huge chunk of that revenue. 
But classified ads accounted for about 20% or so, depending on the market, sometimes a little more. And display ads, Sunday ads, car ads, um, you know, the, the all the inserts they put on your Sunday paper, all those things were a much bigger leverage point on the profitability of newspaper. And all that began to fill off a cliff last decade. Some of that advertising was already moving online. Um, Google and Facebook were already figuring out how to gobble it up. Um, and so that was that was a piece of this. Classified ad got disrupted by, by Craigslist. Um, but it wasn't just Cra- Craigslist. Buying choices from places like eBay um, and, uh, and other uh, places that allow people to sell their stuff directly um, really uh, opened up uh, the market for people who weren't excelled and they didn't need to go through their newspaper anymore. I would argue that one other thing that happened in the background is the invention of the smartphone um, because all of a sudden the things that people um, needed from their media could be delivered on a device that um, was independent of the newspaper. And that is all the different little apps that were on that initial phone, the, um, the weather, you know, the stocks, um, you know, be able to access social networks that allowed for community conversation. All that stuff was buttons on, on your phone. Um, and those were information needs that were that were completely monopolized by the newspaper um, in in pre pre smartphone, and they, you couldn't get them anywhere else. You had to subscribe to that stuff at the local level, and so changes in how we were using media was another big factor um, in terms of how um, people were getting information, and as a result, um, they you know uh, it changed their it changed the the the, the fundamentals of newspaper economics. The other thing that was going in the background, this is the last part of this, is that the newspapers said because of low readership and the need for debt service, were already in something of a death spiral. They were they were trying to satisfy shareholders with those large gaudy profit margins, and um, they did that by, um, you know, basically making cuts. You know that you've got a little less little less revenue coming in from subscribers year over year, and so you make some soft cuts to newsrooms by not filling positions or. Um, you know, or all right, killing positions, although that was a little less rare. And so, you know, that's a that's a lower quality. Your newspaper gets a little thinner, a little less, little less quality. People notice it. You lose some, you lose some more readers. You know, that affects your ad revenue because ad revenue is based on how many how many subscribers and readers you have. And pretty soon, you're in this vicious circle of like, you know, um, less revenue um, from readers mean that you have to make cuts, which leads to fewer readers, which leads to less ad revenue, which leads to more cuts and so forth. So we were already in this vicious cycle before even any of that was happening. But if you go to like 2008, the beginning of the of the recession, the Great Recession, where ad revenue fell off a cliff, I mean, I'm talking a decrease of from about a peak of a few years before that, about $67 billion to about $20 billion, a loss of about $40 billion in ad revenue over the course of uh, only a couple of years. Um, that is a that is an unsustainable uh, problem for business, um, uh, the business of newspapers. So that accelerated those death spiral cuts then. And so this slow process where um, you know the, they were slowly kind of um, stripping their newsroom apart, but not in noticeable ways, all of a sudden had to accelerate. So you started to see those really big mass layoffs. Um, in 2008, 2009, um, because they just could not handle that big of a sharp drop in revenue. But the, the double whammy of the loss of, of uh, display advertising and um, and classified advertising was too much in, in the face of a public that was not primed for paying the news at the rate they would need to sustain that business. Um, so what should they have done, just real quickly before we close? They could have invested. Um, 
the, the internet was known. It was coming. I think by the 80s, most publishers were aware that it existed. But I think that they took for granted just how disruptive that was going to be for their dis- business model and that they they should have been in those years where they were seeing declines rather than propping up stock price investing over the long term. And that's one of the big weaknesses of the quarter-to-quarter model um, that you know, you by share, by by prioritizing shareholders over investment in the long term of your business, you you eventually end up killing a healthy business. Um, and so one of the one of the criticisms of the industry was that they basically planted the seeds for their own destruction. That you know they, I think journalists who don't necessarily know the history of their own industry and the economics of that history, um, or history of those economics, excuse me. Um, they, they like to come, they, it's really simple to latch onto a real simple, simple problem like Craigslist, you know, or, um, lots of Google, Google or Facebook stealing all this revenue. But the truth is, is that, um, they, they filled a vacuum that was created by the newspapers in action on this, that, you know, they should have seen a, a time coming where, uh, um, self-publishing was going to create a world in which someone was going to disrupt classified advertising. Um, and you know, the, or there was going to, there were going to be tech companies that come along and invent something that was going to start stealing revenue, uh, in terms of ads. Newspapers business model was to create relationships with advertisers. Um, and that is because consumers or members of the public had big information needs that could only be met by the news. And, um, that being the only game in town, they had create, create a relationship with, with a public that advertisers could make use of and exploit to, to sell things. And if you think about what Google, Facebook, Craigslist did, they came along and created a new relationship with the public. And that's not really their fault. I mean, they, they started to do something better or more efficiently than the, than the public was used to having, and they latched onto that. And so what you've got there is a, is a new kind of um, uh, relationship that was being created, and advertisers are always going to drift to the thing that is, uh, is going to give them the most audience and eyeballs. So there was a there was a lack of investment. I mean, I always say that newspapers should have invented search. Um, it's I know it's a little bit of hindsight, but they were in the information acquisition and delivery business. Um, that is something that with a little foresight, some investment, and I think even some honest to god futurists on their staff, they probably would have you know that's something that they would have started playing in. Um, that when they the early days of the internet, when Yahoo was indexing web pages in mass, that they would have seen the need for somebody to cut through the clutter and figure out how to deliver that stuff best. And newspapers had the had some advantages. They knew those markets, they knew the needs, and it was just a lack of investment. Um, there was there's a very short-term mentality that, that plagued that industry during the, the era of hyper-consolidation that has laid the seeds for where we are right now. Um, that the, thinking in short-term and not trying to plan for lean years um, and, and investing bumper crop as my, my metric Clyde Bentley at, at Mizzou used to talk about investing bumper, bumper crop funds in the future to help build a business that will survive the things that come along and eventually are trying to destroy you. Um, the economics are a lot less um, simple than just the internet did this. Um, and that, that's one of the messages of, that I try to deliver to, to students when I, when I teach this stuff. Um, and that's, that's the, the point of what we're talking about today. Um, we're going to, Get, dive into next time uh, some of the some of the changing ways that that newspaper economics and, and the way that's been disrupted have had an impact on other industries. Um, talk a little more about television and radio and and some of the internet players that have come in this space. Thanks for listening. The Backshop is a non-commercial podcast recorded and produced by Jeremy Latat at Lehigh University. Special thanks to Kaseki, whose music was used for this podcast and made available via Gemendo with a Creative Commons license.